Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation for the Scripture reading. Revelation chapter 21, and verses 9 through 16. on the fly we're just going to read from 9 to, to the end of the chapter so uh, Revelation 21 verse 9 right to the end of the chapter this is the word of the Lord then came one of the seven angels who had who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying come I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain, a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a high, a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were, were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Please turn now to the scripture text, or the sermon text, rather. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us your word, and it is precious unto us. We ask you now for your glory and our good, that you would bless the preaching of it this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose word this is. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, did you know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the earthly dwelling place of the living God. The New Testament affirms this in several places. We are temples of God. Because we are united to Christ, the long-awaited temple of God among men. Have you ever actually meditated on that fact? Well, what does it mean to be God's temple? Well, think a moment. Upon how God's dwelling places were described in the Old Old Testament. How devoted so many of those passages are 
to relating how important the tabernacle or temple of God was. Meticulous care was devoted to every minute detail of its construction and its contents. In several places in the Old Testament, we see how important, how sacred, how holy God's tabernacle was. Nothing unclean was permitted there. No trace of idolatry was allowed. Consider the many rules in the Old Testament about the cleanliness of the priests, of their garments, and of the holy articles. If there was the slightest blemish in a priest, or if there were any notion of a blight on a garment, or an instrument, or a vessel, such was deemed unsuitable for God's holy place. Understand, beloved, that you are God's holy place. You are his dwelling place. You are his temple. And realize, too, that the old temple, the old tabernacle, these structures were always meant to be pictures, only shadows of Christ and of you if you are in Christ, if you are a member of his body. The sacred precinct at the very first was the Garden of Eden. The sacred precinct for national Israel was first the tabernacle and then the temple. The sacred precinct for us is us. Recall how the tables of the law of Moses were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And know and meditate on this fact, that one of the principal promises of the coming new covenant in the Old Testament was that God would write his law on our very own hearts. As the law of God in the Old Testament was placed in the most holy place, so now the law of God is written on your hearts, the innermost confines of your inner man. So you may not find now one square inch of holy ground on this planet anymore, but the person of a Christian. We must therefore keep ourselves pure of every defilement of body and mind. Let that, O oh Lord, be our daily concern. Lord, help us to concern ourselves with the sanctity of this holy place. No less than his priesthood did in the old covenant with those holy places, which were just, again, mere types and shadows. There's something else I'd like to point out here. You are the temple of your concern, not some temple that unbelievers in Jesus Christ may erect in the earthly Jerusalem someday in the future, within which they hope blasphemy blasphemously to offer animal sacrifices once again. To offer animals again in preference to embracing Christ and his perfect once-for-all offering is a sacrilege. And it is an offering to God not from faith, but from unbelief in the promised Messiah. 
To sacrifice animals now for sin is to trample underfoot the blood of our Lord. The only blood that ever could wash away sin. So if you want to help subsidize a beautiful habitation for God in this world, don't send money to construct a temple in Israel. Rather, adorn that new covenant temple, which is you. Read your Bible. Read godly literature in your free time. Don't watch that TV show that you know makes you more worldly. Here is the temple with which you have to do, beloved. The temple within, or between, I should say, your temples. That is the only temple in the New Covenant period. So adorn it with godliness and obedience. And so delight its divine inhabitant. Let's look again at verse 5 of our text. 1 Peter 2.5 We are not only God's spiritual house, we are told, we are also a holy priesthood. Did you know that you were a priest? But did you know that you are royal? Now you might dismiss this. You're just a common person like everybody else. You're not on the books of the landed nobility back in the old country. But that's not how the Lord sees you. You are royal in God's books. That's how God views you if you are united to Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Now the first Adam, the first human, was also created to be a royal priest, a priest king. We who make up the renewed humanity, this recreation of the fallen human race, have been made into a royal priesthood too, as the Apostle Peter tells us this morning. We are made into what the children of Adam were meant to be, priests before God and kings under God. We know that Adam, the first of our race, was created to be a royal priest because of the place in which he was set by God. The Garden of Eden was the first sacred precinct in this world. It is the place where God met with man. Anytime a place is designated as a habitation for God, it must be thought of as a holy place. And it must be classified as sacred space. And this fact is also shown in the many ways that the tabernacle, constructed so long later, was designed to be reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, with its alteration between the evening and morning sacrifices, harking to the evening and morning pattern in the creation, and with its very tree of life-like menorah, with its curtains dividing man from God, recalling the separation between heaven and earth by the firmament, and with its cherubim, on the tabernacle's curtains. Curtains that greeted the westward-moving priest as he comes to make atonement for the people, thus illustrating the reversal of the eastward trek of Adam as he departed the sacred space, and recalling to man the cherubim who formerly prevented man's return to sacred space. 
So, Adam was first placed in the Garden of Eden to perform his royal priestly duties. And the Garden of Eden was a holy place. Since the tabernacle was a holy place in which priests performed their roles, so too was the Garden of Eden, which the tabernacle was intended to mirror. But let's consider for a moment the actual words God used when he placed Adam in the garden, just for a moment. At Genesis 2.15, we are told in the ESV, God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Adam was placed it in the garden, was placed in the garden to work it and keep it. Again, that's the ESV. But these Hebrew words are just as properly translated as to minister within it and to guard it. To minister within it and to guard it. And this combination of Hebrew words is found elsewhere in the Bible. In the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 28, we learn of the various duties of the Levitical tribe for and within the tabernacle. The Levitical ministry of one clan, the Gershonites, again, this is in the tabernacle, is represented in the ESV as service and guard duty. These two words in the Hebrew are cognates of the words translated in Genesis by the ESV as work and keep. The words are different in form. They are infinitives in Genesis and noun cognates in numbers, but the meaning is the same. It's as if I were to say, I am going to run this afternoon, as opposed to saying, I am going for a run this afternoon. The meaning is the same whether the infinitive verb is used to run, or its noun cognate, a run, is used. So Adam, within the sacred precinct of his day, just like the Levites in Numbers 4, in the sacred precinct of their day, their duties were to minister within and guard the holy place. This sheds light, brothers and sisters, on what Peter means when he tells us that we are a royal priesthood. We are to minister within, on the one hand, and we are to guard the sacred precinct on the other hand. Minister and guard. So you too must now minister and guard within God's sacred space. You must, you must purge his holy place, his sanctuary, his residence of all that is unholy, of all that would offend, of all that would grieve the Holy Spirit. As Adam ought to have done with every unclean thing brought into the garden, such as the serpent. When he trespassed into the garden, Adam's duty to guard that sacred space should have prompted him to eject the unclean thing. And as Israel ought to have done with every unclean thing that the surrounding pagan world offered them. As we know, Adam failed. Israel also failed. But Christ triumphed. And we who are now united to him by faith must minister within and guard his sacred space. You must serve as a royal priest within the temple 
between your temples. Keep in mind, too, that there are corporate aspects to these duties. We are not lone rangers in Christ's church. We are united by faith around the ordinary means of grace, like soldiers rallied around a king's banner, around the preached word, sacraments, and prayer. So remember that the obligations that we have as priest kings to minister within and to guard extend to the church in general. For we must take note that in verse 5, we are together being built up into one spiritual house. Plural stones. Singular house. So we must endeavor to minister within and guard the sanctity of the church too. Which is the gathering together of God's redeemed dwelling places into one grand temple of the Lord. So as kings, you must, as we've said, guard God's dwelling place. You must cast out the unclean thing. But as priests, you must now offer spiritual sacrifices. Now how do you do that? What sort of sacrifices does a Christian offer? First, we must be clear about what our priestly sacrifices are not. Our sacrifices are never guilt offerings, trespass offerings, peace offerings, or sin offerings. They do not expiate guilt. They never atone for sin. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and he alone, by his once-for-all perfect offering, atoned for all of our sins and made peace between believers and our holy God forever. But having removed those offerings from our consideration, were there other priestly offerings in the Old Covenant that could shed light on our offerings in the New? The principal sacrifice that comes to mind is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. As the Lord said, through the psalmist, at Psalm 50, verses 13 and 14, looking forward through the typical priestly sacrifices at that time to our spiritual sacrifices today, said, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. This goes to the nature of our spiritual sacrifices. It's things we do with our thoughts and our prayers. But spiritual sacrifices are not limited to prayers of thanksgiving either. In the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 15, we read, Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praise and thanksgiving. These are our sacrifices. We offer him then the calves of our lips. If you have difficulty praying, you can pray for help with your prayers. At Romans 8.26, Paul writes, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do, not, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Seek the help of the Spirit of God when you desire to offer God spiritual sacrifices. He promises 
to help you. Intercede for others too. That is a priestly function that we are commanded to practice. Pray for the brethren and their needs. I know that's hard to remember of all the needs. We have printouts and you can make your own prayer lists to help yourself if, you're, if your memory is unreliable like mine. Give thought ahead of time to your sacrifices. Plan your devotions. Protect them from distraction. Structure your Sabbath activities with all these things in mind too. Let's conclude this section by considering what makes these sacrifices of ours acceptable to God. It is important for us to understand that no matter how well-intentioned a person is, no matter how hard a person tries, his offerings to God, his prayers to God, his praises to God, are not pleasing to God if that person is not in Christ. At Romans 8, verse 8, Paul writes, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. At Romans 14, 23, he adds, Whatever that does not proceed from faith is sin. It is by our union with Christ, then, that our sacrifices, our offerings, are acceptable to God. This is why Peter writes that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Recall Hebrews 13 here, quoted a moment ago, about how it is through Christ that we offer up a sacrifice of praise. The Spirit must add the incense of Christ's perfect offering to the smoke of our offerings as they ascend to the Father in prayer, and in worship. This alone makes them acceptable to the Father. The honor is for you who believe, says the Apostle in verse 7. The honor, that is, of bringing offerings to God that are pleasing to Him. But for those who do not believe, their offerings are not acceptable. The benefits of Christ's redemption not being applied to them, their offerings are like the offering of Cain. Not arising from faith in Christ the mediator, no such offering can ever meet with divine favor. It is through Jesus Christ alone, then, that your offerings are acceptable to God. Prayers, offerings, tribute to God, if they are not offered through Christ, they are sin. Let's turn our attention for a moment to another important point that Peter is making in verses 9 through 12. Peter describes his readers here as, quote, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Terms that were once used of national, that is, ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, are here applied by the apostle to the church. To believers in Jesus Christ. National ethnic Israel, the builders who, for the most part, rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone, back in verse 7, have stumbled over Christ 
and disobeyed the word of the gospel in verse 9. And Peter adds, this was something that they were destined to do. You should note. But the major point I want to press here is that for the apostles, believers in Christ have become Israel. Believers in Christ, we are told elsewhere, are the sons of Abraham. While unbelievers in Christ are, for the apostles, don't miss this in the text, they are Gentiles, as Peter says plainly in verse 12. In the Old Testament, the Jew and Gentile distinction was understood to be a matter principally of ethnicity, of physical descent from Abraham. But Peter here and other New Testament writers elsewhere make it clear that things have changed. The only Israelites that now exist are believers in Jesus Christ. And everyone else is a Gentile. Now, without meaning to overthrow every distinction between Jew and Gentile, this is the New Testament perspective on the matter. Being believers in Christ, we Gentiles have become spiritual Israel. We have become, we are told, sons of Abraham. While everyone else, even Jews who do not believe, are now considered by the apostles Gentiles. Before all of whom, Peter tells us in verse 12, we Christians are to keep our conduct honorable. Remember and believe that no one comes to the Father but through me, says Christ. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He, be- he who believes in him will not be ashamed. Let us not direct our attention to these words. Believers in Christ will not be ashamed at the judgment. By the same token, those who are not believers in Jesus Christ will be. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who do not trust in him or his offering of himself, and prefer to trust in their own works, that is, in their own offerings, will be ashamed. Let's consider for a moment that offering of Cain that I mentioned a bit ago. I used Cain's offering as an example of an unbelieving offering. Cain offered the fruit of his own hands, the fruit of his own labors, didn't he? He offered his own work product unto God, an offering indeed of his own devising. Having no faith in the coming Messiah that was pictured in Abel's bloody offering of an animal from his own flock, Cain offered a faithless offering. God had no regard for Cain's offering. But he had regard for Abel's. You see, Cain's offering belonged to the wrong covenant. After the fall, a second covenant needed to be made with men. The covenant of works had been broken by Adam. The kind of covenant where a man's works could be acceptable to God, in which a mortal man could bring an offering that was the fruit of his own hands, like Cain's, was over and done with. The second covenant, the covenant of grace, which looked forward to the coming Savior, who would offer a payment for sin by the bloody sacrifice of himself, 
first revealed in Genesis 3.15, permits no such offering as Cain's. Now that we have fallen into sin, the rule is, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. His brother Abel's offering reflected this new covenantal reality. Abel's offering reflected his living faith and trust in the coming Messiah and the bloody work that he would do on our behalf at Calvary. Abel's offering reflected his resting in someone else's labors, not presumptuous confidence in the value of what one brings to God from his own efforts. Cain, like every other person who lacks faith in Jesus Christ today, stubbornly persisted in clinging to the terms of the former covenant. He insisted on being judged by his own works. He prefers to offer a faithless and hopeless offering of his own devising, rather than receive by grace through faith the offering of someone else, of Christ. Again, which Abel's bloody offering foresignified. Now let us close with this. For those of you who are in Christ, who do trust in his one offering, and nothing that you bring from yourself, I encourage you to submit cheerfully and patiently to the sanctifying hammer and chisel of the Lord. I say this because when you do neglect your duty, to keep his temple cleared of money changers. The Lord will cleanse his temple himself, as he did with that whip of cords in John chapter 2. The Lord will clean house himself, his house, if you fail to do so. And he will use his scourge, if need be, to do it. And if he does, bear up under it, without murmuring. But if there be any of you here today who still think that you can meet with God's favor by your own works, who think that you may find God's approval by your own offerings, I urge you to repent of that sin and of all your sins and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and his offering alone. For unlike Cain, who went into exile with his countenance fallen. All who trust in Christ will never be ashamed. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, how you have done so much beyond what we could ask or imagine, because you in Christ have not only cleansed us of sin, you've also made us fellow heirs of you through him. O Lord our God, you have also condescended to make us into your own house, your holy place, your sacred space. Help us, O Lord, therefore, to carry out our duties to minister within this temple and to guard it, to cast out every unclean thing and to offer you spiritual sacrifices through him. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.